I'll ask you if you'll turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 16. And our verses for today will be what is considered the conversion of Lydia. But there is a point in this particular narrative I want to zero around for just a moment. The title of today's sermon, if I had to ascribe a title to it, would be The Proper Place of Prayer. Acts chapter 16, we'll look at verses 11 through 15 today. But before we get into the reading of this selection of scripture, I want to start off today's message with with a story, a true story. The names and the places will be withheld for, for obvious reasons, personal privacy of this individual. But there's a young pastor who I know, who is often awakened in the late hours of the night with burden and concern, almost to the point of crippling. This young man has said that he is concerned with the state of his church. He is concerned with the wayward members He is concerned with the spiritual vitality and growth or the lack thereof. He's concerned with the members under his care. He is stricken with his own ineffectiveness and his own failures. He is stricken with these failures in his personal life and for the life of the church. Now in his personal life, Things are good. Not perfect, but things are good. Which I think relays to everybody in here, even myself. He knows that these burdens are not a way of a depression. They are not depression. They are not some type of self-loathing. They're not, he has said that this is not a place of burnout. He doesn't see all of the, any of these things, depression, burnout, or, or any of that. But he simply carries a burden for his church family because he has grown to love his church family. And a pastor or a leader who does not and has not grown to love his church family needs, probably needs to, to call it quits. So he's burdened with his church family because he loves his family and is sometimes at a loss over what to do. He has said he has laid there at nighttime, and as he is as as he wakes up, he'll turn the television on, and will read the captions at the bottom of the TV to fall asleep, because his mind drifts, his mind gets carried away with these burdens and this overwhelming burden and yes, and guilt. You know, I had uh, I had lunch with. A, a pastor friend of mine, I consider him a friend not long ago, and he said, Larry, I have no friends. I don't have any hobbies. And I can say, honestly, as a pastor here, I've got lots of people who I consider my friends. And I praise the Lord for that. But there are some folks who, have, who feel as if they are out on an island and they have nowhere to go, they have nothing to do, and they feel isolated in their ministry. I praise the Lord that I that I have friends and, and people that I can turn to 
But back to this young man, this young pastor, he recalls one Sunday morning this interaction that he had with a, with a deacon. And it was on the way out, and it wasn't anything overly dramatic. Okay? It wasn't anything like uh, some type of some drama in the church or anything like that. But something had happened, some words here or there. And he said to the pastor, he said, I don't know how you deal with all of this. It seems as if it rolls right off of you. And the reality is, for the pastor, it is not like the issues of the church roll right off as much as it is he tries not to think of them because they are the crushing burden that they press upon him. And so there is a lesson for the young pastor. There is a, a lesson for those in ministry. There is a lesson for those who are involved in ministry. And it is a lesson for us, for all of us, this morning. And the lesson is, is this. And I, and I think this song helps us in a way. As the words to the song that we just sang a little earlier. The words to this song that we sang is, what a friend we have in Jesus. As simplistic as this message is, is the answer that we seek. In the second line, in the second verse of what a friend we have in Jesus, the verse says, have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? Is there? Yeah, absolutely. We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful? Who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Finish it, church. Take it to the Lord in prayer. So yeah, prayer is the topic or the theme for the sermon today. This is the message that the young pastor needs to hear. This is the message that the pastor who is struggling needs to hear. Who is without a friend. But if we have a friend in Jesus. It is the one who is seeking something from the Lord. The one who has come here today. Who is hungry to know more about who Jesus is. The one who has come today. Who is burdened with cares and concerns. Take it to the Lord in prayer. As simple as that message is. It is powerful. So as you can imagine, that is the topic or the theme for the sermon today. In particular, where is the proper place of prayer? Where is the proper place of prayer both physically? Where do we drop to our knees? And spiritually, what is the position of our heart when we go before the Lord? There's two aspects I want to conquer today in the sermon, if you will, using that, that verbiage. To address the physicality of prayer and the spirituality of prayer both together. So as your Bibles have been turned hopefully to Acts chapter 16. I'll ask you if you'll stand for the reading of God's word. We'll begin at verse 11 chapter 16 and work our way to verse 15. In God's holy, precious, infallible and inerrant word. So let's begin. So setting, from, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct march to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis. And from there to Philippi, which is leading city, the leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and we spoke to the women who had come together. 
One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you had judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Father, we ask you, God, that you would add your blessing to this reading of your breathed out word. God, that it would engage our heart and mind. For the sinner here today, we pray for repentance in Jesus' name. For the church, God, we pray for transformation. We pray for maturity and a walk that is more mature in Christ. And we give these things to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So last week in chapter 16, the apostle Paul and company was redirected by the Lord towards the city of Troas and away from, from Asia, Bithynia, and Galatia. And for whatever reason, the triune God redirected Paul and company. I hope you noticed that last week in the reading of the word. We see the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. We see the Son of God or the the Spirit of Christ, and then we see in the latter portions that God himself called us to preach the gospel. So in some way, we have this triune action and interaction between God Almighty and the apostles sending them uh, to, towards Macedonia. They are redirected, and it is revealed to the apostle Paul in a vision, a Macedonian man calling out, saying to them in verse 9, to come over here to Macedonia and help us. And we ask this question. What could they possibly help with? What could Paul possibly do to help them? What did they need? And how was how Paul and company going to help? Were they going to bring in some food items? Were they going to bring in some humanitarian efforts? Even though this city to, seemed to be well off in some way. Being in a port city where they are going. Were they to offer some humanitarian efforts? How could Paul and company help? And we come to this conclusion that since Paul and the apostles were preaching Jesus, and since they were staying in the area making disciples, that the only way that they could help was taking the good news of Jesus Messiah to them, preaching Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and that he is coming again. The end of verse 10 is the answer to that question, and I just alluded to it in verse 10, that God has called us to preach the gospel to them, to tear down idols, to disregard worthless superstitions. And by the way, these are still relevant points for the church today, to cast aside idols to disregard worthless superstition and anthropocentric, man-centered superstitions and theologies that we sometimes articulate in our heart and mind to make ourselves feel better about things. Disregard worthless superstitions and what every human being needs is salvation of their soul from the wrath of a holy and righteous God. This is the greatest need. This is our greatest need. 
A more pointed question might be, when was the last time that your lost friends and your lost family members heard you offer an earnest Christ-centered prayer? Now, reflecting from the message from today, where is the properly placed time of prayer? Where is the I'm going to have to yell at that one until we get booted back up. But where is the proper place of prayer? Better yet, when was the last time that you offered up this prayer before your lost friends and your lost and your loved ones? Actually glorify Him and actually return worship to Him. And in regards to the proper place of prayer in the heart, it is when the heart is properly focused and reflective on Him. As R.C. Sproul once said, I don't think that we know God like we think we know God. That is the problem sometimes in the churches today is that we simply don't know God. We don't know His character. We don't know His attributes because we are not spending time getting to know Him through the Word and in a time of prayer. And so Paul's mode of operation, as we have already seen, is to focus his work week on the flow and rhythm of the Jewish work week. Where they were going to get together and pray, Paul was going to get together and pray. If it was on the Sabbath, Paul was going to meet on the Sabbath. If he knew the rhythm of the Jewish week, he was going to focus his week around that. And so that's why we find Paul, when they first set sail and they first land, the places that he goes is to the synagogue to reason with his brothers that Jesus is Messiah. This meant that he would normally find the local synagogue. He would engage with the worship leaders therein in an attempt to persuade them with the good news of Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah and that he is the risen Lord. Therefore, on the Sabbath day, they went outside to pray in an open, in a, in an open area, open outdoors, near more than likely what is known as Lake Ganatis, which lies right near the Philippian city gate. And this lake will play into what we'll later see as a baptism of Lydia. It appears that there was no synagogue there, so the apostles gathered for prayer at a time of worship. It is during this prayer meeting that they meet a company of some God-fearing women who had come and met together for whatever reason. They may have come and, and come to gather for a time of prayer. Whatever reason, we are not openly given through the word, just that they were simply there. Paul and company notices it, and Paul being a strategist, and seeking every opportunity to speak about the Lord Jesus, spoke to these women. So Paul is a strategist. If you recall, Timothy was circumcised so they might be able to go and to persuade his Jewish brothers that Jesus is Messiah. And to also speak to the Greek as well. To be all thanks to all men so that in order they might be able to save some. So Paul is a strategist seeking every opportunity to talk about the Lord. And this seems to be an unusual place 
But regardless, even if this is an unusual place of prayer for there to be a congregation of people meeting together, this is exactly God bringing together. We might say the stars aligned together or something like that. But God brought two worlds together in this proper place by God's providence, by God's sovereignty. This is the initial beginning of the answering to that Macedonian call to come and help. It is God bringing the right people together in the right place and at the right time for the right purpose. You ever seen God do that in your life? Bring together the proper time and place and purpose all together for the glory, for the glory of God. And the usage of the word spoke, as you see in your Bible, as, that says, as we sat down and we spoke together to the women... It is a verb that is obsolete and become obsolete later on in the Greek, but it is simply translated. It can be translated as well to preach. In other words, the apostles met for this time of prayer and they also began to preach to those who were gathered there. So not only did they pray, but they preached as they spoke to this crowd. They didn't just pray to themselves and keep to themselves. They noticed the congregation and they engaged this group of women and began to preach to them. Luke also uses the first person plural. That implies that each of the four, being Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke, preached in turn. And Paul was the chief speaker in this occasion. So everyone involved, everyone involved with praying from this group was also proclaiming. So this time of prayer in its proper setting leads to preaching Jesus to a group of lost people. And I can think of a valuable lesson by some of the things the apostles did here that Luke records. And then some things that are not in the biblical reference. Some things that they did and some things that they did not do or refrain from. And maybe we can learn some lessons from what we see and what we don't see in the text. What they did not do was fail to meet together for a time of prayer. What they did not neglect was a meeting or assembling together. It didn't matter if there was a church house. It didn't matter if there was a synagogue. They knew the importance of assembling together and they met together for prayer. They did not have to have a house of prayer to meet together to pray and to worship God. They did not have to have a house of prayer. It didn't stop them from meeting. It reminds me of, of Hebrews 11, 24 and 25 that tells us to not forsake these assembling together. We, we see the day of the Lord approaching. We meet all the more. In the midnight cry, we just heard saying, as we know that the day of the Lord is approaching. Why? Because every breath we take, every minute that is expired, every hour that is expired, every second that is expired is a day closer to the return of the Lord Jesus. And as we see his return approaching, we meet all the more, don't we? And so they did not neglect to meet together for a time of prayer simply because they didn't have a place to meet. They made a place to meet. They did not have to wait for someone in the group to lead or to open up with a time of prayer to lead it. They took charge. This speaks to our privilege that we have as children of Christ to approach the throne of grace in confidence. We don't have to have a pope. You don't have to have a pastor to lead in prayer. You can do it. 
You don't have to have a potentate or somebody to lead in a time of prayer. We have, we have authority and confidence in Jesus to approach the throne of God in confidence. Not in ourselves, but confidence in the resurrected Jesus. If Jesus gave his life as a ransom, and he has, then I think that is something worth talking about. That's something worth praying towards. If it's nothing more than thanking God outward for his saving grace. God, thank you for saving me. In the presence of our lost friends, in the presence of our lost family members, in the presence of our, uh, of our co-workers or wherever it might be. Thank God for his saving grace. Nothing more than that. You will notice that they did not need a million dollar facility before they prayed. I am thankful that we have a church to meet and to pray in. I am thankful that we have a place to meet together. But there are places across the world that do not have this privilege. There are people who are praying, no doubt, right now on a dirt floor, huddled around together and are praying and approaching the throne of grace through Jesus. They did not have to have a multi-million dollar facility before they prayed. They did not need a gold embossed order before they had the right to pray in Jesus' name. You can pray on the ditch bank or you can pray in the bank. You can pray in God's house or your house. Just seek him. What they did do is they sought a few people who were around them. These women. And right there on the spot. They sought to begin to answer that Macedonian call and to offer them help through the only one who could help, Jesus Messiah. They sought the opportunities to engage in the gospel. And sometimes, sometimes it is as simple as saying, can I pray for you? I've only had one time that a person turned prayer down I said, can I pray for you? They said, no, I'm okay. Come to find out they were Jehovah's Witness. And I said, Lord, I, I need to pray. But I've only had a person one time turn me down for prayer. Sometimes it is as simple as that. Can I pray for you? And it opens up gospel opportunities. When was the last time that you asked somebody if they can pray, if you could pray for them? When was the last time? How about a stranger? What a stranger. When was the last time you asked a stranger, hey, can I pray for you? I don't know you. Now, there's not 3,000 people here that were saved like on the day of Pentecost. But these few were obedient even to the one that we will see here in just a few moments, Lydia. Imagine if every follower of Christ would be obedient to him. Imagine the joy that we would behold. Imagine what revival we could see. Maybe a great awakening. Even. A second great awakening. Imagine that. George Whitfield. The days of George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards. Imagine the, the great awakening that happened that. And it could still happen today. But what I think our problem is. We have too much clutter in our life. We have too much junk in our life. That, cl that clutters our, our atmosphere. It clutters our landscape. And somewhere along this walk, we need to learn how to get rid of that clutter and spend some time with God in prayer. What joy we can see, what revival 
Imagine the current state of the church if we sought every opportunity to pray and we seized that prayer. We seized that time. Every opportunity. God opened the door for this gospel encounter. He can open those doors today. When we earnestly pray to God, I believe that God opens the heart and mind of people. He begins to work in our own heart, in our own mind. Now, I'm not talking about some spiritual incantation that you throw around like a spell. I'm, I'm talking about where God changes the heart and mind and he redirects our worship. We're not just going through some, some motions of prayer. We're not, we're not regurgitating a recited, recited prayer. There's things that is in our heart and mind. What, what Charles Spurgeon would call the overflow. Preach from the overflow. It's down within you already. So let it pray out. In verse 14 says, One who heard us was a woman named Lydia. From the city of Thyatira. She was a seller of purple goods. She was a worshiper of God. The Bible says the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Now Luke describes this woman by the name of Lydia. Who overheard them preaching and praying in unison or together. She's from Thyatira. Which was known for dealing in purple goods and dyes for clothing. And by mentioning Thyatira and purple, Luke, the evangelist who wrote Acts, is informing the reader, he is informing the audience that Lydia was a woman of means. She was rich in that culture. Purple was an expensive item and associated with people who had much wealth. It goes to show you that no matter if you're rich or poor, if you're high on the social status or low, God can save you and God can use you. So he mentions that she was also a worshiper of God or a God-fearer, meaning that she may or may not be of Jewish origin. Now, she may or may not be Jewish, but her beliefs lined up with the God of Israel. A follower of the law, the follower of the Torah, the law. There is evidence that she heard the gospel and she responded. The Bible just simply says in, the, in verse 14 that God opened her heart. She heard what Paul and company were preaching and praying and God opened her heart. But what is the evidence that God had changed her? What is the evidence that she was transformed? We see this evidence by the preaching by the praying, that the Lord prepare her heart to receive the good news. And this is something that God can only do himself. I can preach till I am blue in the face. And I pray that the Holy Spirit would use that preaching through God's word to penetrate our ears and our heart. And that we would respond to that. But I can get up here and I can preach in my own accord and it will have as much power as this pen might have. And so, this is something that only God can do. By the reading and preaching of the word and by the unction and in conjunction with the Holy Spirit. Something that only God can do to open the heart and mind. Now, what is the evidence that she believed? It is found in verse 15. The Bible says, after she was baptized. And her household as well. And she said, she urged them to 
have judged me to be faithful to the Lord. Come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. She kept at it. Stay with me. She kept at him. Won't you stay? It's like the persistent loving grandmother that says, won't you stay in a little bit longer? Visit a little bit longer. How about another piece of cornbread or another helping of, of collards or whatever? Stay a little bit longer and prevailed them and kept at it. And being that the river was right there next to them by God's providence, setting up this place of prayer, there is a place where we can be baptized right now. She was ready to make her public profession to Jesus. And a mark of her now genuine faith and as a genuine disciple, her and her household come to know the Lord Jesus and they followed in believer's baptism. Now the last phrase says she prevailed upon us. This was also an instance of great hospitality and also an evidence of her desire for further instruction and teaching. Now, they are not urged or persuaded to come into Lydia's house just so they can eat up all of their food and have supper together for a few days without there being some apostolic teaching and instruction. So she invited them in their house so that they could teach and so that she can suck up the doctrine and the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ like a sponge. That is a mark of a disciple. And so, no one had to tell her that she needed to learn more about her faith as a disciple. It wasn't as if she said a sinner's prayer and that was the end of it. It wasn't as if she walked the aisle and filled out a visitor's card, joined the church, and that was it. No. She wanted to learn more about her faith by having the apostles stay in their home. One thing that we cannot say authoritatively is that this started with just simple prayer. And the reason that I say that is because the wheels were turning. God was, in his providence, was, was moving way before they ever touched down in Philippi. So God was orchestrating all of this for this perfect place in a perfect time Way before they spent time in Philippi praying together by this lake. But it certainly was a catalyst. Paul and company were bold enough to pray outwardly and openly. And Lydia heard it. And she leaned into the gospel. God saved her. And those in her household were saved. And were later baptized. And by the way. A child of God in Christ will show, will demonstrate fruit of regeneration in their life. The Bible says that we are new creatures. Behold, we are new. We don't live in the past, okay? We don't live in the past. We are new creatures in Christ. The old has passed away. Behold, all is new. So there is evidence in our lives. I believe you'll want to pray more. I believe you'll want to spend time with God's people more. I believe you'll want to get in God's word more. I believe that you'll want to know more about Jesus as you walk in this life. So let's take a trip back. Back to the pastor friend that I mentioned earlier. He knows without a shadow of a doubt 
that his prayer life needs to be more robust. Many people have this false notion that just because a person is a pastor that they have all the adequate time in the world to pray. That their prayer life must be like Jonathan Edwards or, or Charles Spurgeon or, or even Billy Graham who would spend three hours in prayer a day. You would think that their life would be just robust and just this mountain of, of, of time to spend in prayer. But that's not the case at all. This pastor friend knows that prayer is the most, is, the, is important and needs to be, become a priority in his life. So let me ask you again in closing, where is the proper place of prayer? It's where you are. It's wherever you are. Where is the proper place of prayer for the heart and for the mind? Where is the proper place there? It is when we are in tune with the things of God and, and being at a place of worship and adoration. The proper place of prayer for the heart is, listen, to get, the se to get self out of the way. To get self out of the way. This is why James states in James 4 verse 3 that you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly or amiss. You ask for things to spend on your own fleshly desires and your own passions. In other words, you receive not because you ask selfishly. So let me ask you a series of closing questions. You can write them down. But I ask you to simply, if you will, take a mental note. When was the last time you prayed for your lost friends to come to know Jesus? Hold on to that question. When was the last time you prayed for your lost friends to come to know, to, to come to know Jesus? When was the last time you prayed for your lost family members? Hold on to that question. When was the last time you prayed for your church, for your pastors, for your deacons, for wayward members? Hold on to that question. When was the last time you prayed for your church, pastor, deacons, and wayward members? Hold on to that. When was the last time you prayed for our worship services? That God would use the songs and the message to, to speak to us and change us. When was the last time you prayed... For our worship services. Better yet, when was the last time you prayed of how, of how God can use you in those worship services? God, how can I be used in this setting today? Not just simply talking about the volume of the instruments. But use me. When was the last time you prayed for your country? And if you're honest, and I hope you have been, you may find that you have prayed more for your country than you have for your church. You have prayed more for your country than you have lost people. So where is the proper place of prayer? It is here this morning on this altar.
So I ask you those questions and to hold on to those questions because I'm going to ask you to come join me. I hope that you have saved those questions. I'm going to come in here in just a moment. I'm going to ask if, if um, our organ and piano or organ can, can come and, and play our invitation, if you will. I just want to spend some time on the, on the altar this morning praying for those things that I mentioned. Praying for lost friends to come to know Jesus. Praying for our family members who are lost. Praying for our church, our pastors, our deacons, wayward members. Praying for our worship services. Praying of how God could use you in those services. Praying for your country, yes. So where is the proper place of prayer? It is here and now. So if you will, I'm going to come down here in front and I'm going to pray because I need it. I need prayer. Would you join me, church? Would you join me around this altar? And let's just spend a few moments around God's altar in a community, a gospel-centered community, and pray for the lost, the church, community, and the world. Would you join me?